spotlight in purple. Hi, my name is Kyria Yvonne Traber. I'm a Black queer femme, a writer, performer, and cultural worker. And this is Spotlight in Purple, the podcast, season two. This podcast is a part of a multimedia, multi-phase project, a maximalist universe developed by the dance theater collective Sydney L. Mosley Dances, known to friends as SLM Dances, or SLMD for short. Welcome to episode three. In the first two episodes, we learned about the history of the SLMD collective, the making of their new work, Purple, A Ritual and Nine Spells, and the community building they've invested in with the Lincoln Square Neighborhood Center. If you haven't listened, I encourage you to go back and enjoy the first two episodes before continuing the journey. This episode, Reverberations in Purple, Black Femmes in Conversation, is going to be very different from the first two. Instead of a series of interviews, this is a single roundtable conversation between myself and three of my favorite artists, Ebony Noel Golden, Alexis Pauline Gums, and Sydney L. Mosley. If you don't know who these women are, get yourself to the internet and enjoy their incredible offerings in dance, theater, and multiple literary and nonfiction publications. You can also check the show notes for where to find them and thank me later. This conversation took place a few weeks before the premiere of SLMD's Purple. We gathered virtually to discuss four foundational womanist texts that influenced the work over its six years of development. An incomplete reference guide for Purple lists nearly 40 sources that inspired the work, including visual art, live performance, literature, nonfiction, and scholarly articles. We'd need an entire semester-length seminar to cover them all, so for this conversation, we chose four books. The Color Purple by Alice Walker, Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo by Intezaka Shange, The Salt Eaters by Tony K. Bambara, and Undrowned by Alexis Pauline Gums. As facilitator, I was as interested in our personal experiences with these works as Black femmes as I was with our intellectual analysis. I believe that this is the way these writers intended the work to be consumed. This word womanist, you may have noticed, is a term I've been using throughout the series. It was coined by Alice Walker, originally in her 1979 short story, Coming Apart. In her words, it comes to me from the word womanish, a word our mothers used to describe and attempt to inhibit strong, outrageous, or unspoken behavior when we were children. You're acting womanish. A label that failed, for the most part, to keep us from acting womanish whenever we could. That is to say, like our mothers themselves and like other women we admired. Because it's from my own culture, I needn't preface it with the word black, an awkward necessity and a problem I have with the word feminist. Since this coining over four decades ago, there has been an entire field of study devoted to womanisms, plural. Scholars and activists have devoted their lives to expanding on, critiquing, and complicating the term. For our purposes, it's enough to say that Walker helped start the conversation that we're engaging in here. Having said that, I need to acknowledge that in March 2023, 
Walker published a blog in support of the transphobic author J.K. Rowling and espousing some of her own narrow beliefs about gender. I won't give those words airtime here, but they are available on Walker's website if you'd like to read them for yourself. Later in this roundtable conversation, we'll address the issue with the broader question, what do we do with our problematic faves and elders? But up top, let me speak plainly. Sydney L. Mosley dances and I, Kyria Yvonne Traber, do not condone transphobia or cis sexism. We stand in solidarity with our trans siblings and support bodily autonomy and gender liberation for all. And that's that on that. Now, what you're about to hear is a conversation among friends. Collectively, there are decades of relationship between us. Across the years, we've shared performances, publications, and public discourse, and as many private moments of celebration, grief, and healing. And you're invited to sit in with us. This episode, more than any, is one to settle in for. Grab yourself a cup of tea, hot or cold, your choice. And let's take a deep breath. And now we begin. I would like us to introduce ourselves to listeners and to each other in the tradition of Audre Lorde by naming um, our names. Who are we? Um, how do we want to be seen today? Um, and I guess I could start. <laughs> so my name is Kyria Yvonne Traber. I am a daughter. I am a child of asphalt and of Redwood Forest and Copper Pan. I am a writer. I am a performer. I am a podcast producer. And I am a collaborating artist with SLM Dances. Can I pass it to you, Sydney? Yes. My name is Sydney Liana Mosley. I am a friend, a sister, a daughter, an auntie, a cousin, and a lover of all human beings. And I bring that into this conversation today. I am also the artistic director of SLM Dances. And inside of that, I am a choreographer, a dancer, and um, a facilitator whose creative practice really centers in bringing people together through movement. Alexis, will you go next? Sure. I am Alexis Pauline Gums. I am a queer Black troublemaker, Black feminist love evangelist prayer poet, priestess, marine mammal apprentice. And my job in this lifetime is to be love, channel love, connect all love to all love across generations. And I'm an auntie, I'm a daughter, I'm a student, I'm a 
blender of tea and a uh, person who spends a lot of time sitting on the floor. Nice. I'm so happy to be here. I'll pass to Ebony. Hey, y'all. I am so glad to be here. I am the daughter of Dr. Betty Ann Sims and Harry Alvin Hicks Ibaye, the granddaughter of Bertha Lee Adams Sims and Arthur Adel Sims, um, the great-granddaughter of Pearl Glover, the great-great-granddaughter of Luvenia Brown, and the great-great-great-granddaughter of Mary Brown. I'm from the lands of East Texas, deep East Texas and Northwest Louisiana mm. by way of uh, Shreveport and Marshall, Texas and the, uh, Marshall, Texas and Shreveport, Louisiana by way of Stop 6, Fort Worth, Texas and Dallas, Texas by way of Houston, South side of Houston, Texas, um, <clears throat> a neighborhood called Harm Clark and um, I am the sum of all of my my folks, and I am um, a brilliant star shining in the cosmos. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, that's how I feel today. Um, how I feel like describing myself. That's who I am. Thank you all for that exercise. I, I love the conjuring of geography, of deep lineage, of practice and practices of um, body. I, I noticed in my own introduction today that I didn't say Black queer femme, which I almost always say, which is just so <laughs> interesting. I think in a lot of ways, because of why we're gathered here today, I took that as a given, um, which is also a blessing in its own right. <laughs> so why are we gathered here today? Um, a little bird told me that uh, Sydney has a little show coming up, I think, maybe? <laughs> Which is to say, Purple, a universe, is having a world premiere at Lincoln Center. Um, by the time of this publishing, I think we may be already witnessing it. Um, I believe, is it true that it's six years in the making, Sydney? Will you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's six years in the making from seed of idea to uh, fruition, birthing, manifestation. Um, and the idea really came from um, relationship with one of my little sisters, Simone Sobers. And... Um, there was a moment in time in New York City about almost 10 years ago when she and I were um, skipping around town as you do <laughs> and visiting lots and lots of cultural experiences that were either um, led by Black women, centering the creative work of Black women, centering the knowledge production of Black women. And every event that we went to, there was just a very particular feeling um, 
that was in the air when we were gathering and we started to call it purple. Mm -hmm. And so from those experiences, I realized that inside of SLM dances as a burgeoning dance company, that the feeling was very similar that Simone and I were having um, in our fun and inside of SLM dances that was being cultivated. And so I got really interested in what exactly that, that feeling, that vibe, that frequency was and how we could um, unearth something about that through movement, share something about that through movement um, and really kind of I mean, you can't see me, but I am <laughs> <laughs> unfurling my fingers right now. Mm -hmm. um, that is, that's what, what it feels like to me mm. um, in, in creating this work. Beautiful. Thank you so much for that history. And I, I believe, knowing a little bit about that history, that on that day you were skipping about town, it was both the company of your sister friend and also the engagement with art by black women is that correct absolutely and so in that lineage i know that you started to gather um a bit of a list of all of the inspiring sources that have led into this work purple and among that are some of these literary giants these works that many of us as young black women as young black feminists um, encountered at perhaps a pivotal moment. Um, and we're going to discuss just a couple of those today. And um, I want to start with one that many may think is a namesake, and I think in some ways it is, but in a slant way, which is the color purple. You said to me once, Sydney, that the color purple film came out in 1985, which is the year that you were born. And so you have only lived in a world where the color purple exists. And that's significant to you and provides a kind of foundation from where your vision can unfurl, as you just said, or blossom. What does that mean to you? What is a post-color purple world? What is that? What is that? What are the, what's the evidence of that? that we could see around us? Ooh, that's such a good question. Um, I think that some of the things that the color purple unearths for me is the many, many, many ways that women can be in relationship um, and, and, and the, uh, what I wanna say, the, the many facets of intimacy mm -hmm. very specifically mm -hmm. between women. I also love in the book very specifically the reparations mm. that occur, mm. the healing that occurs, um, the amends that are made, and that the, the reparation and the amends making happen through um, art making together, quilt mm -hmm. making. Mm -hmm. It happens through sewing together. Um, I also love so much 
how Miss Seely finds her liberation. Mm. I also love so much how Miss Seely finds her liberation through her pants making practice, mm. right? Um, so there are, and 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 I can you know keep naming all these other moments in the novel, but um, all of these examples that I am naming, yeah. um, I'll, oh, I'll, one more that I'll name is that through the letter writing, mm-hmm. um, letters to God and then letters to sister. And for me, I've always read that as sister is God when that transition happens. Um, and so for me, um, all of those ideas are the the world that I get to move through, right? The, that is the world that I get to play in. That is the world that I get to create from where the, all of those um, <clears throat> ways of being are just a fact. Mm. Um, and so from that place is where I can move. Mm. All those ways of being are just a fact. Thank you, Sydney. So. I myself had my own private discovery of the color purple. I literally found it on my mother's shelf when I was too young (laughs) and read it voraciously. I'm curious, what are other people's experience of either having read the book, seen the movie, or just encountered it in the world? Would anyone like to share? I can share. Um, I I have a similar relationship but I was born in 1982 which is Mm -hmm. the year that the novel came out Mm so so I'm always like I live in a world where there has always been the color purple and Alice Walker's work generally my mom had on display Mm -hmm. like I don't remember not seeing books and the name actually Alice Walker trying to like be like when could that have started but my my mom um my mom's literary collection Mm -hmm is the reason for everything. And I remember, but I'm still trying to remember because I've read it so many times. I mean, I just reread it recently and I find different things each time. And I also tune in, in terms of the film, like that film can be on for like a blip, you know, like (laughs) just in passing somewhere. And I feel like I'm right down in this world and this feeling of possibility and this um, emotion, you know, like sometimes I'll just see a blip of the color purple and I'll be like already crying. Like it is, um, it's a really powerful ceremony. Mm. And the fact that it in itself is an ancestral ceremony of Alice Walker remembering her ancestors and offering them a different story, a different ending to true stories of their lives is huge to me because I feel like everything I'm doing is an ancestral ceremony Mm. as well. So living in the context of the color purple, one, because we came into existence at the same time as a literary work, but also because I grew up in a context with a mother who valued that work specifically Mm. and that I get to be in the constant process of listening for and imagining with my ancestors means it it really is. I mean, it it really is the air Mm. and the lens Mm. and the context 
sometimes in ways that I'm surprised by again, you know, like I'll read it again and be like, oh, right. That's why I say that, mm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, well, that's where I first saw that yeah. it, it was the first place in literature that I saw women in an intimate, physical, right. loving relationship as lovers. Right. And that's really important to me too. Yeah. Absolutely. I think that lover relationships, I was just rereading it this week and I had forgotten how immediately, like just a few pages in, she discovers Suge as an idea um, and how that carries her through uh, some of the hardest moments of her experience. I had not remembered that. I mean, to be honest, I'm not much of a rereader. So I read it when I was very young, and I think I reread it still very young, and I haven't really returned. And so it is sort of buried in my subconscious in this way. Um, And so for me, it's been such a private practice, such a private, um, practice isn't the right word, such a private knowing, such a private um, experience of discovery. I actually found myself when I saw the movie, like being angry that it wasn't the book. (laughs) Because the reading of it is obviously such a private imaginative experience. And it it's been this work that I I didn't read it with others and I didn't discuss it with others for so so long to to like come out into the world so many years later and find that it has this resonance with other people was this another layer of self-recognition in the world. Like reading the book, oh, this kind of desire, this kind of connection exists in this work. Oh, it out in the world, other people have also had this same experience with this book. It exists. It, so it's been a, a, a multifold experience in that way. Ebony, I'm curious, um, have you um, had your own personal journey with The Color Purple? What's been your relationship? Oh, I've had, I've had so many um, experiences and encounters with this text. And um, I'm thinking about in this moment, um, you know, the visuals of the movie um, and the way that there's something, you know, the translation of the book to the film, I'm, I'm clear they're not the same, but it's something about reading the poetry of um, the poetry of the novel and the letters and in the descriptions, particularly what's standing out for me are the ways in which the natural world um, are attended to. And, um, and this is important because that the, the stretching, the bending of the language to really meet the expansiveness mm-hmm. of the, the natural, the Southern la- natural landscape yeah. is, I mean, it's hard to do. Yes. Poetry approximates it. Alice Walker absolutely, you know, gets us there in some ways. And then I can't help to think about the visuals of the film, you know, and the way black folks look against green, mm. you know, against blue sky. <laughs> it is to me, um, very much in my in my in my frame of reference and in my imagination how we how i understand an eco-womanist you know Mm. aesthetic it is how we look when we are in spaces that are living and thriving even with the situations that the, the difficult situations but 
but we can't deny, I can't deny, the landscape is abundant. Mm -hmm. The landscape is thriving and the landscape, the landscape turns when the, the family, you know, or when issues are happening, then nothing can grow. Yeah. Nothing can grow. But there are these moments in which it's just indescribable in some ways. It's very ecstatic in other ways, very erotic in many ways mm -hmm. to see the land and these beautiful Black people, you know, traversing, journeying internally and externally yeah. in these landscapes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Brilliant, beautiful, and also challenging. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what's mind. Yes, challenging. I mean, it's also, it's a really violent work. There's a lot of depictions of some of the worst violence. And, you know, Sydney, you spoke to reparations, to healing. I'm curious, in a reread of the work, what are your thoughts as you... Um, any, anyone can take this question. As you revisit the work older um, and encounter some of the worst aspects of sexualized violence, uh, misogyny, um, and then the journey the book takes you on, like how do you how do you reckon with that as an adult and thinking about what you the art you want to see in the world and what it's like to depict that? As a, as a way to reckon with it. Does that make sense as a question? Yeah, that completely makes sense to me as a question. And, and I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about it in a few ways. I've, I've reread this text so often and still I find myself upon rereading, remembering what I've repressed, mm. right? Like remembering what are the aspects of it that I have push to the side for myself mm -hmm. and don't think about as I think about this text all the time. And so that's interesting, right? That there, there seem to be aspects of it that I protect myself from so I can go back. Mm. And maybe if I remember those parts, I wouldn't be so eager to go back <laughs> because of what I'm remembering are the reparations and, right. you know, the love and the beauty that we find in that text. And I, I think it is interesting to think about this text in particular with how people can identify with and disassociate mm -hmm. from something at the same time. Yeah. Because that's what, I, what I've been doing. And I feel like if I've been doing it, maybe other people have been doing it. I think about when June Jordan taught the color purple to her students as a way, one, of course, to teach an important text, but also to think about Black English, which is a really important mm. part of June Jordan's work as a teacher and her, and her theory and her philosophy. And she talks about how she did this exercise where people, could you translate into uh, the dominant form of English this first scene or this mm -hmm. first letter, right? And she talks about the people were laughing, there, you know, there was there was all of this because like, because of the black vernacular, mm. but she doesn't actually address even in her essay, how does it feel for this room full of students to be talking about a horrific act of child sexual abuse right. um, and generations of sexual violence? 
which are laid out immediately right. as soon as you enter the text and what's untranslatable about that what's um mm -hmm. what's disassociative about laughter what in our relationship to respectability in the black vernacular gets pushed aside mm -hmm. such that it's not even for for a black feminist mm. who whose poem about my rights has probably helped and been spoken at more take back the night and you know fighting rape events as any mm. other work of literature for her not to mention mm -hmm. the factor of sexual violence as a factor at all in her discussion of that scene of that work right so that's part of my also self-compassion about being like okay if <laughs> If June Jordan compartmentalized, mm. you know, who am I to not, you know, like I'm doing it too. And I guess I'm in good company, yeah. but we're all also reckoning with what is, what is the ceremony that allows us to be present to these horrific realities yeah. and still get through to the reparations, the relationships with these full characters that Alice Walker creates and, um, and with the aspects of ourselves that may or may not be ready mm. to be to be hailed mm. to be participating in the ceremony mm. at this time mm. Mm. all that is to say so the most recent time i read it i actually um had covid <laughs> and i was like i'm not moving i'm laying here in the bed and i'm, I'm rereading this book and what struck me this time was something about endurance. Mm. You know, like, I don't think that I really got the level of care and work and labor that Celie was doing yeah. for generations of a family that couldn't even clock her existence yeah. as a person for years and years and years. And getting that and for some reason, that was the important thing for me to get this time. Then moving into the sewing the pants and creating the company and, and, you know, having this expansive vision and joyful life and being able to come back and have a critique of these children, you know, like all of that was even more triumphant for me upon this reading and maybe understanding just at a different age, what some of that gendered labor and care is through experiences that I didn't have when I was first reading this book and I was only responsible for caring about these grades, you know, right. <laughs> like being a good student. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I appreciate that it has those layers yeah. and I appreciate what it's teaching me now. Yeah. I had a similar, very similar experience in the, my most recent round of rereadings over the past couple of years where we reread it together as a collective and I had just forgotten like I literally forgotten until I opened up the first page um so I too have had that experience of compartmentalizing but I think that for me then when I taught it um to college students after that read um what I was able to bring to that being 
um, an adult now with my adult lenses and what I have learned since is how to engage these very necessary conversations with care mm. in a way that as a student, as a child, as a young adult, I didn't have the tools for. Mm. And so when I taught it most recently, um, I invited another one of our friends, Sara Abdullah, who is an herbalist, um, to do a workshop with students um, around lavender and all of its properties. And she taught us how to make a lavender oil. And we talked through grounding exercises, breathing exercises, et cetera. Mm. And we did all of that as preparation mm. to read mm. the work. Mm. Um, and so having access to that knowledge and those resources yes. has been um, necessary, a necessary mm. layer to revisiting the work again. Mm. Mm and to invite others into the work mm. in our present time. That is so brilliant, Sydney, um, that you were able to not be afraid. I mean, I think, you know, you're talking about teaching and I assume in an, in an academic institution where there is, I mean, you, you spoke, you evoked um, respectability, Alexis, and a, a, a lot of respectability reigns in academic institutions. And so to not be afraid of um, any ways that uh, something like an herbal healing workshop might um, be considered sort of unintellectual, unacademic, but instead to say, this is a necessary gateway into being able to fully engage with this work and not just dissociate. That's really, really, really bold. And, it, and it's a testament, I think, to the way that you work um, generally with your company in which the work, embedded in the work and the process of work is so much about radical care, which I think we'll continue to speak about. Um, a question I want to ask about um, this, the age of color purple that we all live in, <laughs> is I want to ask anyone, everyone, because let, let's acknowledge, right? Like the, the publishing of the work um, was a, a breakthrough in a, in a publishing landscape. The idea that a work that's so centered Black women and their experiences could be so successful was not as, was not thought of <laughs> in such a way before. And then that's how it led to a blockbuster film and then a Broadway musical and then so on and so forth. What are the ways that you have seen this color purple landscape giving permission um, or access or inspiration or any um, sort of road opening for other uh, Black women creators? I'll speak to this. Um... So I really feel like there, there, this text, you know, I'm, this text, the color purple, and I, I will, although we're not centering for colored girls, these two pieces for me really, you know, yeah. set a foundation um, that I feel like most folks who are making performance, ritual work, whether that's in choreography, visual art, music, 
you know, media are in some ways in conversation with these kind of mother roots. Um, and I, I mother trees, you know, these, there's a diaspora of work that has been created that is in some way um, activating, amplifying the medicine, the rituals, the, the recipes, and Cindy and I talk about this like literally almost every day, <laughs> that, that in some ways we are children of these of these icons, you know, of these of these planetary priestesses, you know, and in the work, all of the harm and the brutality is there, but also the medicine is there. Yeah. Which is something that I think, you know, um, as one finds themselves in the making process that is in relationship to work like and work exactly, you know, coming from or inspired by um, the color purple, it is important to find that that recipe, mm -hmm. right? Because it isn't just the brutality. And that's that is what I, I was was deeply on my heart. Mm -hmm. As brutal as l lived experiences were that you know in that time and now mm -hmm. um as brutal the brutality is is so um sharp and bitter right and the again going back to the ways in which beauty and and um we experience things growing we experience the blues we experience the prophetic mm. we experience the spiritual ecstasy that comes also in this piece there's something about the world, the universe, the the, the constellations that are created, because the color purple exists in all of its, you know, brutality and beauty. Um, I am clear though that how to address harm and rep and repair in a realm where we can center, you know the lived experiences of black women and femmes, that there is the whole toolkit, the curriculum, the for, for color, um, the color purple is a curriculum for color girls too, but the, the color purple is a curriculum, mm. right? And it is a spiritual, a sacred text because of that. Mm. Uh, for me, it is, it is the way to read and understand the world that we lived in, the world that our great grandmothers lived in, mm and the ways in which mm. they were able to conspire mm. with the spiritual realm, the supernatural realm, the natural world, and in community yeah. to, you know, there's the, there are these concepts of long suffering and tarrying and, and, yeah. and the durational practice of liberation yeah. that comes through, um, the, the deep understanding of that that comes through the text and the film, you know, is it's quite it is quite a journey. It is quite a deep labor. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is quite a marathon yes. of a life. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I think, I mean, I could name I could name ten artists right now mm -hmm. that in some way I could link back to the color purple. Yeah. And that is both explicitly in the making of work, but also, you know, in some ways, even if people don't mention, even if I, I don't mention, you know, the color purple, there are ways in which certain scenes and yeah. moments 
you know, I understand how to set them, how to, how to design them, how to write for them because I live in a world where <laughs> Alice Walker did a thing, you know? Um, and I, I, yeah, I can't, I can't, I mean, literally just the work that I, I just finished, um, yeah. has a scene in it that, that takes a spin on, you know, a watch night service, but nevertheless, the idea of the, the complicated layered nature of the, the prophetic or the religious or the spiritual experience and the nuances in which that can happen and unfold and takes place. I understand more about how to do that because of the way in which a, you know, a womanist, a black feminist um, sensibility around spirituality, the yeah. sacred and the secular get woven and spent around in the color purple. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I, could, I, I could go on without pause. <laughs> well, I just want to reflect some of what I heard you say. I mean, I, you, first of all, thank you for all of that. But a couple of things that are just really resonating me, with me is like you said, the longevity of healing and, uh, and maybe you said in, in endurance as well. Um, or maybe that was Alexis earlier as well, but durational, the, durational, thank you. Durational practice of liberation that's what it is the durational practice of liberation um and a paired with that for me is the way you you referenced that the work gives us insight into what it was like for our ancestors so there's a facing there's a yes it's it's brutal it's difficult and it's true and we have to face it in order to contend with the reality we live in now, in order to go forward, and that it's a durational process, both because we are looking back and because it takes a lifetime to integrate. And that the work does not give a sort of uh, quick satisfying moment of, aha, now it's better, but rather it takes year after year after year before we finally feel that our main character is gonna be okay. So I really just and appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. And I I'll, I want to tap back in because while it's while it's a durational practice, we have moments and blips. It's not a it's not a linear trajectory. Yeah. Right. So in the midst of that of all of that, they're they're going to the juke joint, they're eating, they're growing food. There are things yeah. that let us know that liberation and the way we divide want to devise it and live it are possible the land lets us know mm -hmm. the creative mm -hmm. imperative of the people let us know the sex lets us know mm -hmm. right we're not we're not just waiting for you know heaven on the other side we're living little blips of heaven now we're le we're leaving we're living we're growing little blips of heaven now so we know what kind of what we are fighting for you mm -hmm. know we understand what the what the actual journey and the fight is it is is not waiting on that it is the process that aggregates and 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 you know and it's the it's, it's the conjuring it's yeah. the conjuring you conjure now you might conjure or pray for something now that won't be revealed until it's time until it's time and that is hard for me to even say as it relates to black women being free okay and black films being free and i recognize what the journey like 
again, showing us the curriculum. And sometimes we can hack the curriculum in our lives now, but most often, if I think about my grandmother, my great grandma, my mother, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. um, yeah, they didn't always have the hack, but they did have <laughs> the recipes and the rituals and the conjures to experience a little bit of that every day mm -hmm. in the mm -hmm. midst of the long haul journey. Mm -hmm. And as you continue to speak too, I mean, I initially asked a question about how you see the work um, giving uh, permission to artists, but you're speaking about living and and that there isn't necessarily a separation between those things, particularly, I think, for Black women and femmes. And I just want to read this very short quote from um, Black women, um, Black women writers at work, which just says something we all know, but by and large, Black women writers do not write for money or recognition. They write for themselves as a means of maintaining emotional and intellectual clarity, of sustaining self-development and instruction. Each writes because she is driven to do so, regardless of whether there is a publisher, an audience, or neither. And I must throw in also, she dances, whether there is a presenter, a publisher, or other. <laughs> she makes theater, whether there is a presenter or publisher or other. Yes. She makes podcasts, whether there's a presenter, <laughs> publisher, or other. It is all of yeah. those creative practices that are in us that are our lifelines. Yes. And I know that is true for the four of us on, on this conversation right now. Yes. Um, yeah. Ashe, Ashe, yes. I, I, I identify as beginning with the word, but I too agree with you that there isn't a separation between the expressions of art either. Um, I, I think we could, we could spend the whole rest of the conversation talking about The Color Purple, but we've got three other works <laughs> that we want to bring into the room. But I don't want to leave this conversation fully until um, I acknowledge, um, you know, we talked a bit about the hardness within the work and the compartmentalizing that requires us to do in order to process it. So too must we contend often with the people who inspire us. And I want to name that Alice Walker in more recent years has come forward with some pretty troubling um, remarks and writing about gender identity, um, particularly non-binary and trans folks, also some anti-Semitism. Um, she's not a perfect person. She wrote an incredible work that we are grateful for, um, but she herself is not um, an infallible person. And um, I want to offer a moment, like, she's not the only one, right? Like, there are others in our lineage that, you know, um, are not... At what, 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 what is it? All our faves are problematic. Um, so I want to I wanna open that up a little bit in terms of how we... How do we make sense of the contradictions of the people that we admire in general? Go ahead, Alexis. Yeah, I I think that it's so important. I mean, you know, infallible in person is an oxymoron, right? Like there there there's a there's an importance to understanding that if we're people, then there there are contradictions there. I think in the case of elders or artists mm -hmm. or teachers or healers who have offered us something 
that's so profound that we can't imagine our lives without it, which is what we all have said about the color purple here. It can feel, I, I will say some of the grief that I feel around in, in particular, some of the transphobic um, statements is that I so need the healing, the grace, the freedom, the curriculum, the template that this person made possible that I um, I want and have huge expectations mm -hmm. for these folks who have caused miracles in my life. Like I'm not giving those miracles back. Like I, <laughs> I refuse, right? Um, but that doesn't mean that the conflation mm -hmm. of how much I need to elevate that work and how I want everyone to have the freedom that I have because of it needs to then subsume the mm -hmm. fact that every person is a person on a journey. Okay. They're learning, they're making mistakes, they are uh, listening to some people, they're not listening to other people, they, all of that, right? Like that. that's just the reality of what it is to be a person. Now, as an artist who, you know, people are telling me the healing that they've gotten from things that I've written, that's not even something I would imagine, you know, um, I feel like I really want us to learn to be compassionate because who knows what kind of expectations for some kind of like perfect, fully healed, evolved being folks might have in their imaginations for each of us, you know, people who've experienced our work and will never be the same. Um, I want them to also be able to hold the fact that we're changing and we're changed by that work and, and other work and we're not the same today and yesterday and, and we're dynamic and we're on a journey. And there are things that we are totally ignorant about right now that we're going to learn about and we don't even know what those are <laughs> but like that that's the that's the reality so so yeah i think that there is something and actually a lot of the artists that that we're talking about if we're yeah. talking about alice walker we're talking about entazaki shange we're talking about tony Cade bambara have faced in different ways the burden yeah of what it means to bring something through that people relate to in such a way that they then conflate it. Like this must be a perfect being right. who brought this through. Mm. I think the other thing that's really useful about honoring that those contradictions exist and remembering that artists are people is that everybody who's transformed by that work if they understood it's just some person who's going through life who made that work, they might understand that they have the capacity to bring mm. through the other miracles that we need, right? The other curriculum that only they could bring through because it comes through their ancestors and it comes through their perception and, and their experiences and not say, well, the people who create that are just some other type of being yeah. that they achieved perfection and then they created these works. It's like, no. These are just the artifacts of our journey yeah. and our journeys are miraculous and we don't have to separate ourselves yeah. from those mother trees, those, you know, deep roots, those folks who were young people when they created works mm. that we can't imagine our lives without. Yeah. And like everyone else, those folks, if they're living, are still young in some areas of their lives, yeah. 
are still growing in some areas of their lives like we are. And I just think we deserve that kind of compassionate, creative community. Yeah. And it would make, um, it would probably make the listening and probably make what I, what I see as the possible reparation and apology and transformation that's called for mm -hmm. in, in this case more possible if there wasn't this idea that anybody had to be perfect. Yeah. Very well said, Alexis. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah, nothing to add. Um, I do, I guess, yeah, I, th I think we live in, I mean, I think, I guess the one thing I'll add is as a part of a similar ac activist ecosystem that I think we're all a part of, um, this sort of adamant and uh, insistent and often righteously rageful calls for um, for for people to be called out for harmful language, for harmful policy, for harmful um, expression on large platforms is such a it's such a it's a tool that has been really effective and been really. Um, resounding in the kind of activist circles that I move through. And also, I think sometimes nuance is left out. <laughs> and I think sometimes um, we leap to that strategy because we are so, um, like I do believe in the power of anger and it is so often a shield and a cover for much more complicated, messy feelings that are so uncomfortable to reckon with and especially in community and in relationship. And I think we have to ask ourselves, um, what do we want from our relationships even more than what we want from individual figures? Um, and I also wanna stand firmly and say that trans people exist and are beautiful and <laughs> non-binary people exist and are beautiful. I myself am on a not so binary spectrum and I believe I stand in company with SOM dances when I say this. Um, Sydney, do you want to speak to that? Absolutely. I, I truly believe that we are all on our own human experience and whatever expression of gender we want to share with the world that is who we are. It is self-determined and that is who we are. Yes. Thank you. Let's, let's, let's take a turn. Let's, let's keep traveling on this road and let's visit some work of Intishaka Shange. So you called into the room, Ebony, of course, for Color Girls, which um, we could have easily picked. It's a dance theater work. It's a multi-voiced chorus. It's a ritual. There's so many ways that purple is in lineage with for color girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough. But, and yet, Sydney said, actually, there's this other book. <laughs> and I'm so, so grateful that you turned me on to this. And I just want to start us off with a quote from Sassaf Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo. It's from one of the very first pages on page two of my edition. There wasn't enough for Indigo in the world she'd been born into. So she made up what she needed, what she thought the black people needed. Access to the moon, the power to heal, daily visits with spirit. And I thought that was just such an invocation to what I have experienced in even some of the earliest drafts 
of purple. So I wanted to set us off there. Uh, I want to open it up. Who uh, you can speak to an experience reading this work. You can speak. You can speak to um, a reference to that quote and, and what it how it serves you. Um, any of the characters in the work. Does anyone feel called to respond first? That is actually one of my favorite quotes in the entire novel. Um, and I think the thing that I appreciate about it so much is that Indigo is a child. And mm -hmm. so we are so squarely placed in um, the centering of play and imagination mm -hmm. by a Black girl, but she's also a Black girl on the precipice, right? Mm -hmm. She's not a baby. She, you know, she's a preteen. Um, and, uh, and so then there's like this persistence of imagination yeah. that is contended with um, and an indignant, um, uh, yeah, an indignance about that throughout um, her journey. And for me, centering that experience of indigo into our, as we grow, um, into adults and into grown womanism and into um, elderness um, and bringing that with us is a lot of what um, I have been inquiring about as I've collaborated with the many artists um, throughout this work. Um, I know that you had a conversation with Mama Diane mm -hmm. Harvey, who is um, featured in our ensemble of performance. And she always goes back to one of our first conversations, which was, I asked her, what brings you joy? What do you do for fun? How do you play? And it really kind of like set her back on her heels for me to ask her that question as someone at the time in her late 60s. Mm. Um, and for me, I have been very curious about how we continue to create what we needed, what, what we need, what Black people need, um, and persist about that throughout our lifetime journey. I see the sense of play throughout um, so much of what you're doing with, with Purple. And I think there's often... Um, I mean, again, like I, I, I noted your boldness in bringing ritual to the classroom and here you are bringing legitimate play to a professional stage. Um, you're unafraid, I think. Um, I, I witness you looking what looks like unafraid uh, to bring these aspects of black girlhood um, and sisterhood in front of these, uh, on these austere and uh, uh, elite, quote unquote, as deemed by the white man stages, um, and in front of a public audience. Do you experience yourself as unafraid or maybe you have a different relationship with fear? And, and how have these works, and maybe particularly Intazaka Shange, um, emboldened you or given you some permission? I don't want to say that I'm unafraid, 
but I think the thing that keeps me accountable, I, yeah. And so it's not a fear that I have in my process of making work, but it is a need to feel accountable. Mm -hmm. That's what it is. Mm. And so, you know, making art, making performance work and putting on a stage, that is what I do, is what I have been doing my entire life. Um, and so it really doesn't matter whether the stage is the street corner outside or at Lincoln Center. I'm gonna put, I'm gonna make something up and put it on. That is a <laughs> fact of my life. <laughs> mm -hmm, now, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I think for me, it's the question is, am I in integrity in my relationship with my collaborators? And thinking about collaborators in the broadest sense. So not only the people who I am physically moving with and um, making performance with, but also community members who are informing the process. Also these texts are my collaborators. And so how am I in, in integrity with those texts? Um, that for me, it's not a fear, but it is something that I keep a close watch on. It is something that I, I try and keep my finger on the pulse of. Thank you for that. So opening up again, the, the question, the conversation is, uh, what has been your experience with Sassaf Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo by Ntozaka Shange? And I'll share the quote again in the chat in just a moment. But in general, yeah, what has been your experiences with this work? I love this book so much, so much. Um, it's hard to choose a favorite work by Ntozaki Shange, but I think this is mine evidenced by how, how much I go back to it. Um, and I think, I mean, in, in terms of her own life, right? It spanned so many years, right? She wrote the novella Sassafras. She, she was writing pieces of these spells while she was at Barnard. Um, it, these three sisters are really the place where we see Ntozaki Shange's ceremony for Black women, theory of what it is to be a Black woman um, elaborated mm -hmm. over time. So, I mean, as some of y'all know, I mean, I've created programming for each of these sisters, you know, the Indigo After School program and the Indigo Nights and the Sassafras Saturdays, you know, like, like everything. Um, because I think that in their vulnerability and their magic in their um, in the ways that they themselves confront gendered violence, mm. these three sisters hold space for so many aspects of myself that I'm continuing to learn to love, so many aspects of my community that I want to, yeah, give warmth and prayer to and I definitely see, you know, what what you do, Sydney, what you do, Ebony, what you do, Kiria, what I do in the lineage of the ceremony creating that we see modeled through Indigo mm -hmm. and the spells mm -hmm. that she's like, this is what Black people need and I can write a spell that manifests it. Mm -hmm. Me mm -hmm. and my dolls mm -hmm. can make this happen. <laughs> you know, yes. like, like that is yes. 
true, yeah. right? And I think that that's the permission that Black women artists have given ourselves. Yeah. And it, it's it's everything. Um, yeah, I mean, I love the way that and Suzaki Shange's influences and other Black women artists over time are so woven into Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo. I I love the way that in their very names, they are also plant medicine allies mm. and the title is a recipe and then there's recipes all throughout of, you know, this is the way that she cooked this, this is the way that mama made this, you know, all, all of those, um, it's explicit, mm -hmm. it's explicitly like, this black feminist care package mm. <laughs> like what do i need i need sisterhood i need good food i need ritual right it, it's like yeah the time capsule <laughs> so um you know i know you didn't ask us if we were on a desert island and we had what you know what i'm saying <laughs> but like this would be one of those yeah. texts that it just has so much for us and it's clearly for us. I mean, I know for colored girls, it's called four colored girls. Yeah. And I'm glad that you can't say the name without realizing who is for. Um, but Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo, oh, it like, it lives with us in a particular way. And maybe in the specificity of these as named women with particular experiences, even more so than the important universalizing and adaptable um, way that the colors in For Colored Girls work, these sassafras is sassafras. Mm. Sassafras is a specific plant and sassafras is a specific person. Mm. Indigo is indigo. And it's just um, the intimacy of how I feel related to these sisters <laughs> is like, I'm like, yeah, I was there at your initiation. Yeah, I was there when you first got your period. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. like, I feel like I was there in a, a way that has been so sustaining mm -hmm. and nourishing and nurturing for me. And I feel accompanied by that work in, in a particular way. And I'm glad, you know, that it offers space for all ages of us. And I'm grateful that it, that lives through what we do. It lives through our work. It lives through our programming. It lives through our art. And it means we get to live there. Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Ebony, as someone who um, clearly has um, a strong relationship with For Color Girls, what has been your relationship with this work by Shange? Well, um, yeah, um, I, I do, I do have a, a relationship with For Color Girls, you know, I've taught it, I've directed it, I've choreographed it. And this text, though, does something for me. And I'm literally, I've been thinking about how to talk about this, um, because I am thinking about a cadre, a whole collective of books that um, I read for the first time while living, I think I was perhaps living in, in DC. And these books were all kind of like in rotation, dog-eared in my, you know, backpack. And this is one of them. Mm. I feel like there is an expansiveness that comes across in the work um, 
that is something that I, I, I relish in, um, the, just the depth and the expansiveness and the, the, the complications of uh, all of the sides of, you know, um, experience and living and, and womanhood. Yeah. Um, I, I, I like them. They're delectable in a way from a, from a very visual standpoint as well as an intellectual standpoint. Um, and what is calling calling my curiosity in a, a lot these days, I, I mean, I read this book almost every year. And it's one of those books that I read every year, like Song of Solomon, I read every year. I feel like I have to keep coming back and getting my geo-positioning based on these books and, you know, and several others. But this in particular, I think thinking about a, a Gullah Geechee conjure, mm. right, that comes through in the work is super important to me. This really also goes back and I to, you know, my, my feelings and, and proclivities around eco-womanism. Um, and how the land is a conspire that like conspires with us to understand another nuance about ourselves, whether that is um, through you know the cypress, the mm -hmm. the indigo, you know the sassafras, and what those things have done historically. Those 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 um, natural elements have done um, historically and in this contemporary time. What do they mean? What is the what is the um, the medicine yeah. and the understanding we have about life because of these three sisters? And currently, my when I think about so when I think about this text, I do think about the ceremony again, the ceremonial text that this is. But I I feel like also it's important to lift up the music. You know, yes. the music as yes. a, that ceremony, the music as an integral part of the ceremony and how the music mirrors the actual rituals, the music mirrors the ge the geographic kind of wanderings and journeys that we go on. The music mirrors the interiority of these folks lived experiences, not just the three sisters, but, you know, I can hear the blues. I can hear the gospel. I can hear the jazz. I can hear... The, the the noise I can hear the rock I can hear the things growing the 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 rock the the rock music mm -hmm. is what I mean I can hear things growing right and I think thinking about this in relationship to a buffet a table where you can make your own aesthetic plate and you can feel and sense and taste and listen to, you know, a full synesthetic synesthesia of experiences, a whole buffet of, of, of a life, um, you know, comes across for me in, in thinking about this text. And it's something, you know, about, again, about duration, you know, it's, it's, it's just thinking about how long it takes for us to get to you know, a kind of understanding about about what all of this is, what all of this is about. And again, through a very hor horrifying memory, 
that has to be, you know, that has to be cleansed, that has to be cleared, that has to be healed. Um, it's just, it's, it's really, it's really, um, it, it requires a full bodied presence and a fully embodied presence to, to engage this text. And this is really why I read this over and over again, mm -hmm. um, because it lets me know where I am in my body. Mm. Sassafras, <laughs> Cypress and Indigo let me know and remind me yearly if I am allowing myself to be harmed or if I am participating in my own harm, if I am disassociating in any kind of way that allows me or does, that gets in the way of my own insight or inner sight, if I am growing in my practice of conjure and ritual and recipe making, if I am living in a space that mutes or dims my own creative agency, like all of these temperature checks can happen um, and do happen for me by engaging this text. Mm. Do I know more now about this particular recipe and the right rice to use <laughs> that I knew two years ago, right? It is, again, it is a spiritual text for me. And it's it, the recipes, the music, and the journey, I feel like in some ways mirror my life because mm. I have been to many of the places trying or attempting to do many of the things that are, are lifted up in this in this novel, literally from the Gullah Islands to the Bay. Yes. And, you know, the, the internal journey and the internal maneuverings that, um, that um, are highlighted yeah. and grounded in Sassafras, Cypress, and Indigo um, very much are uh, calling to me. Mm. I'll say this and then I'll, I'll, I'll pause. You know, I, in my own, for my own life, for the last 20 plus years have gone to and returned to the Gullah Islands before I even really understood the historical significance mm up into literally last year and mm -hmm. on my way back in a few in, in a week or so okay and i feel very um inspired because this is a space and a, a legacy and a uh ooh, and, and and a learning um place for me for literally about half of my life mm. and um, I also feel like there's a, a very specific medicine that is offered black folk mm. and it from that part of the, the country, that part of the world, mm. it is, you don't know unless you go, mm. you don't know what's growing there. You don't know the smell of things. You don't know what the food is really supposed. These recipes are really supposed to taste like mm. unless you go in a very you know, in a, in a particular way. And I literally feel like I'm going to another planet. I'm going to another, I'm having another spiritual ecstatic experience. Every time I go, even when I go to the same places, I feel like there's something that I am just now starting to uncover about why situate this, this family here. Mm. Why, I mean, uh, aesthetically and artistically, I get it. 
but what else are we supposed to really understand about life because Sean Gay, you know, tells us to put our attention here. Yes. And that's something that I, I also want to just offer. I'm I'm hesitating because I was going to pick up on so many of the, an, an earlier thread that you brought up, which I will. But now I'm just thinking about when I'm going to make it to the Gullah Islands. <laughs> um, I wanted to speak. To, I'm so glad you brought up the musicality in the way that she writes. I mean, it's so clear to me that she's a dancer um, in the way that she writes. And um, she the fact that she starts with indigo who and in the center of indigo's imagination is such um she's instantly letting the reader know what kind of a journey they're in for and i i wanted to read a quote briefly from again from black women writers at work this is from uh, an interview with shange herself in which she says um uh i didn't want the reader to be able to put the book down if you put it down you had to start all over again but I don't want the book to be something you could put down when it got too emotional. And then um, a little bit later, she says, our society allows people to be absolutely neurotic and totally out of touch with their feelings and everyone else's feelings, and yet be very respectable. This to me is a travesty. So I write to get to the part of people's emotional lives that they don't have control over, the part that can and will respond. If I have to write about blood and babies dying, then fine. I write about that, and you can see from my work, I'm primarily interested in invoking an emotional response. I have, an, I have intellectual moments, but I am not so aware of them. And so I thought that spoke very much to your experience of being with the work, Ebony, that that's exactly what she intended. She wants you to have an emotional journey, and, and through the music of her language and literal ritual and song, she wants you to have an embodied experience of the work. And so I think you're living very much into what she hoped for. Um, I want us to move on to Tony K. Bambara, but before I do, I want to just offer one more small quote um, from uh, Shange, uh, or this is um, from the, the foreword of Black Women Writers at Work. When I die, I will not be guilty of having left a generation of girls behind thinking that anyone can tend their emotional health other than themselves. So that's just... Can you read it one more time? I can, we, we I will. Say it again for the people in the back. <laughs> when I die, I will not be guilty of having left a generation of girls behind thinking that anyone can tend to their emotional health other than themselves. Ebony, you said that's your favorite quote. Do you want to speak to it? Yeah, just it lets it reminds me of what my assignment really is. Mm. You know, this is that's a legacy. That is a legacy. You can choose to be an artist or maker or a conjurer for many different reasons. And there is it, it is not for me or anybody else to choose what your particular reason is to do the thing that you do. But my reason for me and my house, <laughs> right? I also don't want to be on the side of history, on the side of legacy making, on the side of our creative lineage that we are, our cultural lineage that we are moving in mm -hmm. and bolstered by and living in the privilege of. Um, I don't want to be confused. I don't want anybody to be confused about what in the world I'm trying to do, what, what, whose lineage I am a part of, and why. 
the neuroses, the gaslighting, the 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 swirling up of insanity that comes when trying to do something that isn't about us first, mm -hmm. that isn't about my healing first, that isn't like people come to me, you know, mm -hmm. like what am I supposed to do with this? Especially if I'm not going to make a be a millionaire doing it. What should I be doing? What is the assignment? What is the ancestral assignment? What is the the assignment that is coming from the supernatural world. What is a spiritual assignment? Everybody has to make that decision. But the reality of, you know, be, being bamboozled into thinking that somebody is coming to save us mm -hmm. is the is the is the worst. Mm. Is the worst. <laughs> it's the worst. You know, sure. If you if you're interested, sure. If you want to collaborate, sure. If you want to be an accomplice, yeah. yes. And my assignment is to do the most for my own healing and and say being my own savior yes and finding the ways in which to activate the recipes the rituals the ceremonies that are given to us in text and in many other ways mm. in order to support that happening as well but but i am not fooled i am not fooled by people saying that they want to help in their their that help Historically, if we if we if we study and we we recognize trends and things and and the residue of being humans in on this planet, we we have to know that whatever is given to us can be taken away, mm. and what we nurture for ourselves is for ourselves is often to the benefit and edification of the most of us on this planet. Mm when we when when that power and those resources are wielded most often not always but most often when that power and resources are wielded in the spirit of what Sean Gay is talking about in the spirit of of the room that we are currently in um more people are paid fed healed delivered um than less <laughs> and so yeah <laughs> And I think that's a perfect segue into this text, The Salt Eaters by Tori K. Vibara, which is about so many things, but some healing is happening or attempting to be happening. And I want to read this quote right from, again, the beginning of the work, because listen, these writers do not play. They let us know what is what <laughs> right up top. And this this is a quote that is, there's many iterations of this in the first several pages of the work, but the healer says, just so you're sure, sweetheart, and ready to be healed because wholeness is no trifling matter. A lot of weight when you're well. And purple is a ritual in nine spells in which you, your characters, there are characters in the work, are um, being asked to have this sort of public healing. Um, and it's no trifling matter. <laughs> um, and there is resistance. Um, and we resist. Um, but also there's so much more in this work too. Um, I actually, um, I, even though Ebony, you've just given us so much, I actually, there's a word that you keep using that I, I have meant for you to define. I've heard you define it before, but I want you to define it in this context. Eco-womanism. Can you tell us what that is? And then I think we can speak a bit about how maybe this work might also be, as you suggest, maybe all these works are a work of eco-womanism. Oh, I, absolutely. The salt eaters is a work of eco-womanism. Um, you know, as a, as opposed to a definition, I'll give an approximation. Mm -hmm. It, it is a, 
a reparative relationship with the natural, supernatural, and built world mm -hmm. that allows us to see um, thriving and reciprocity mm -hmm. um, with each other, with ourselves, with all of our surroundings um, through a lens that supports the liberation, healing, and wholeness of Black women mm -hmm. and all those who love Black women. Mm -hmm. It is a restorative model of thinking about climate and environment and environment being any place we step, mm -hmm. any place we go, we meaning human beings, we meaning the natural world, animals, but that wherever we go, we step lightly and we step um, as if we are uh, stepping with and on our family mm. um, and, the, and, and in terms of landscapes and water byways, but that we do, we do relationship with the planet and, um, and each other um, in a way in which the most of us are taken care of um, and in the least extractive and toxic um, way possible. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Thank you for that. So for Sydney and Alexis, um, what are some relationships, some experiences you've had with the Salt Eaters and Tony K. Bambara as a writer? How does it inform your lens of the world and also your, your making as artists? Okay. The Salt Eaters is a book that comes and gets me. Like, I will, it will fall off the shelf. <laughs> I will see, I will be on that bus with the, with the Seven Sisters in my dream. Or somebody will literally be like, be on this podcast and talk about it or, you know, write something <laughs> about the salt eaters. And it is like very similar to what you were saying, Ebony. Like it is like, oh, where in my life is my healing calling me? It's like mm. Minnie Ranson is up in here. Like, what about that part? Do you want to be well there? What about in relationship to collaboration and work? Are you ready to be well? Cause you know, it ain't no trifling matter, right? Um, it is so important. It is so important. And I remember the first time this happened because, I mean, this is a text about somebody, about a Black woman artist mm -hmm. who gets to the brink of suicide mm. because she's avoiding her own healing trying to work for the community, mm -hmm. right? So I feel personally attacked mm -hmm. <laughs> is how I feel as they would say on Twitter <laughs> because it is like, where are you doing it, Alexis? Where are you not looking at your own healing? Mm -hmm. It's dangerous and why I do think this really epitomizes what you're talking about, Ebony, in terms of an eco-womanist text, is that Tony K. Bambara teaches us, I think in general, but especially in The Salt Eaters, that we are existing on every scale at once. Mm. So we are existing on the scale of the individual cell, on the scale of this life, you know, Alexis's life on the scale of the community, on the scale of the planet, on the scale of the cosmos, the vibration of the whole universe. And we see this in the salt eaters, right? Because she's like, well, he's driving on the bus thinking about this, but this is the same thing as the nuclear power plant. And then what's happening in the 
cosmos, um, none of it is separate. And so what, what this book reminds me of and I is not shy. Like I cannot believe the ways that it just inserts itself into my day um, when when it needs to. And at, at really huge important times, like when I was caretaking for my dad as he was passing away, you know, these times where it was like, I have I've been compartmentalizing in a way that says, I can't think about my wholeness and my healing right now. I have to offer this. I have to care in this way, you know. What, whatever it has been, but that's a really poignant time where that was going on. And my dear sister, Aisha Shahida Simmons was like, do you think you could write something about Tony K. Bambara for us? And I was like, oh, mm. no, I can't write about Tony K. Bambara when I'm lying to myself. So mm. I have to like get back together in order to do it. <laughs> Speaking of our assignments, right? Um, so yeah, and and to know what Toni K. Bambara knew and what she taught over and over again, which is I can't think that I can ignore my own healing and be accountable to the healing of my community. I can't believe that my community doesn't thrive and yet the planet exists. Yeah. No, yeah. it really is all at once. I can't put something off in service of something else. There is no something else. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the salt eaters, you know, it's hard for people. And, you know, people teach it in classes and the students, the students might not be at the point in their life to read this, whatever age the students are. And it's not about their reading and it's not about, it's not anything about that. It's that it's a ceremony where you have to be able to <laughs> tap into all at once mm. like that we are connected to everything and in certain moments we like compartmentalizing to save our lives you know and like we're just gonna have to wait or like me like i can't i can't say i'm gonna even talk to you about tony Cade bambara without like clearing myself up because mm. it is um it is more than a notion, as my dear mentor Cheryl Green, who was friends with Tony K. Bambara, would say. And yeah, I, I think that that's um, that's the hugest gift mm. that Tony K. Bambara has offered us mm. is the truth of no separation, mm. the truth of you know the original every everything all the time everywhere all at once whatever you know whatever the name is of that wonderful movie. <laughs> that is a, a remake of the salt eaters oh. in a different context. <laughs> the very, the very concept. Anyway, so I, I could talk about the salt eaters forever, but um, but I just had to testify to the fact yes. that that is a book. You know, we talk about the literature; it saves our lives, and yeah. all of it has. The salt eaters, in particular, yeah. has come and got me when I was betraying myself in ways that were unhealthy mm. and that could have been catastrophic for me and my communities and my family and this whole world that I'm connected to. Mm. And I'm just so grateful. 
Thank you for that testimony. I was going to ask Sydney a question, but Ebony, you've been charmed at the bit. <laughs> I love this. Um, go ahead. I'm, I'm going to come on back in. I'm going to come back in. This book also, Alexis, I, um, I remember when we start reading this book with Spirit House mm -hmm. and it became the Spirit House of Black Women's Cultural Organizing Collective based in Durham, North Carolina. Um, I remember when it became, this particular quote became like a, a prayer mm -hmm. for our beloved elder Mama Nia. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, and we, I know I was like, well, this quote is for you too, Mama Nia. <laughs> and you know, because the idea of, of, and so it period like this is this was a quote for her and for us and for anybody who read it but there is something that i think that is a through line for me in all three of these texts right around the daily practices of like the blues mm. and there is something like blues music yeah. blues aesthetic blues ceremony all of it there's something about the blues as a as a cultural phenomenon yeah. that is this conversation and this approximation with how close we are to healing or liberation and as that relates to politically economically socially environmentally what is on what were we in terms of being on the brink of catastrophe, on the brink of demise, on the brink of death, or the flip of that, of victory, of deliverance, of all of it, like of ascension. So that kind of walking the, those lines between a walking that journey, you know, is something that that this quote really talks about. You can give the world everything and have nothing left to give. And we have many examples of martyrdom that comes from black women and femmes who've decided that the world was more important than them. And what the question that comes up in this quote that really is the dragging and the snatching for me mm. is why do I, why would I choose that? Mm. Why would I choose to put someone else's liberation, blah, 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 in front of my own mm. where do i how do i practice my own worthiness mm. wealth w-e-l-l-t-h wellness where do i practice these things and when is it most when do when do i put myself in a position that affirms my longevity my health my well-being my ability to shine my ability to sleep well at night and who is more important than that? Who? Mm. And with this question is the in with, with this question comes a question or thought thoughts about survival, mm -hmm. but also thoughts about investment, mm. and also thoughts about what we are willing to sacrifice mm. for our own healing mm. and wholeness. And this is where it gets to be very crunchy for me <laughs> because me putting myself first means that most people will think that I'm self-centered and selfish. Mm. Most people, even those who love me will say, but well, you really got to come out of that at some point in time. And sometimes you do have to put somebody else first. And I will say, why? 
I will say why, you know, and people we love, people who have loved us, but we literally cannot save the world if we're hobbling along, yeah. not taking our medicine, not getting the love we need, not getting the rest we need. Like the, do you really want to be well, even if it means you are alone? Yes. Do you really want to be well if it means that your family is going to ostracize you in some way, mm -hmm. even if you're around them? Do you really want to be well if you if that means you are not going to participate in misogyny and transphobia and homophobia? Do you really want to be well if people are going to say you're difficult mm. and you you charge too much or blah blah blah? Like, do you really or do you want to be with the people? Do you want people to see you in a certain way and put you on a pedestal, even if you're dying? And that is the, that is the underbelly of that question that I feel like black women in films have to ask themselves, what are you willing to pay for your wellness? And who are you willing to, to put into the corner or to the side so that you can have some mental, physical, economic, all of the wellness, you know? Um, and this is the question I cannot read the salt eaters every year. I just get, it makes people just want to be like, oh, you know, it's a lot. It is a lot. Straight I, out I, of I my, wanted to, go ahead, sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I have to jump in because for me, so first of all, just yesterday in rehearsal, Jaslyn Gowdy, who's one of my artists that I'm working with, told me that she had started to reread The Salt Eaters and you know we have read as a collective all of these works as a part of our dramaturgical practice and she goes you know i just wasn't prepared for the book to read me and i was like yes i was like you're not reading this book this book is absolutely reading you so that's number one number two is that this book came into my life um at a time where i was really in the thick of the crunchiness that Ebony is talking about. And, you know, what am I willing to sacrifice to make art? You know, we've already named that being in these practices are a lifeline for us, but then being in the practice of it is a lifeline. But then when you get into the business of sharing that out, um, in it becomes a conflict mm -hmm. it becomes a, a deep and serious conflict yes. with um i will speak from the eye my wellness and so for me one of my measures of success that i have articulated is i need to come through this production process on the other side well because every other time that i have produced a large-scale work I have not been well when the curtain came down. And so I am now in a place where I understand this more, where I am in deep conversation. Again, as Ebony knows, we talk about this every single day. <laughs> and, um, you know, can I, how well can I be on the other side of, of, of sharing this work in a context and a place in an institution um, that actually doesn't care about me, doesn't care about me as a person, doesn't care about me as a black woman, doesn't care about my collaborators. Um, and, you know, 
it, this means the world to me, but it doesn't mean shit to them, right? Mm. And so navigating that um, is a literally an everyday tension and an, an everyday navigation. Yes. Um, the other thought, I so appreciate you, Alexis, talking about the the all connectedness, the interconnectedness, the everything, everywhere, all at once-ness of this work. Something that I have come to articulate about myself as an artist, I would say only in the last week, the words that I have settled on is that I have a maximalist aesthetic, a maximalist aesthetic. And so the the stage work is everything everywhere all at once we got 12 human beings and the whole everybody who's in the theater is in the work and we've done 99 different things at 99 different times for 90 minutes all at once right and outside of what is happening on stage we making a podcast we got a film series we got two art installations somebody gonna write 10 things about it, like maximalist, everything. And I'm like, yes, this is the work. All of it is the work. And I love that. <laughs> I love that. I love how many entry points there are, how many people, you know, like I'm paying damn near 30 people to participate in this work in some way. Mm. And it's, it is, um yeah it, i am i'm just so grateful because i feel like this work again set the foundation for that mm. it set uh it opened the door for for the maximalist aesthetic that is really bubbling up out of me okay there are so many more streams of conversation we can follow and yet we are pretty much at time. I don't want to let us go without just briefly bringing into the room um, our last work, um, Undrowned, which is by Alexis. Um, I just want to ask you to read one uh, little passage from it, and then we will close out. Um, and this is um, on page 22, um, the last paragraph before the dolphin, uh, triple dolphin emblem on that page. Um, it starts with and me um, and I will say this is a book that made me laugh out loud as I was reading it <laughs> um, because it is intentionally in many ways these last three works that we've been referencing set the stage for black women to claim their own voice their own way of writing their own way of um, existing in a literary space that didn't want to make room for them. This work intentionally also is sort of sticking its tongue out at the white science canon and is saying, I exist here too, not just as literature, but also in science, and I'm going to bring my sensibility to it. Um, and I love that as a full circle and I, I love that as a science nerd <laughs> and also it is a ritual work. It is something that we can use in daily practice. This is something that we can use in our art. There's so much we could speak about here in terms of your call to the nature of breath and what it means, um, as a planetary function 
and also how it's necessary for um, our healing and how it exists in Sydney's work. We ain't got time for all that. <laughs> so I just want you to read this one passage, this last paragraph um, before the dolphins on page 22, if you will. Thank you so much. I totally forgot. I was like, we did it. And then I was like, oh, right. But thank you, because the way that these those three works it, allow me to do this work is even more clear to me in this moment. And me, it was always you I loved, not your elegant strategy. I will love you still if you now outgrow it. I will love you more whether time moves forward or backwards, whether ice melts or water freezes back, whether your next move is protection, breakthrough, shift, or any combination. There are at least three ways to love you. As you were, as you are, as you will be, I love you. That means I choose all three. I'm so glad that I asked you to read that. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you for asking that. Sydney, did you want to um, share a brief response? Just that that's one of my favorite quotes in the whole um, in the whole of Undrowned. And I actually read that quote to my godson at his baby blessing recently. Um, yeah, it. Yeah. 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 Well, it it it. It jumped out at me reading it even before we had this conversation. And then in this conversation, when we've talked about this longitudinal journey of healing, the ways in which choosing ourselves may alienate us from others, the way in which we have uh, been, by walking in this world as Black femme artists, have in some ways... Um, chosen this path where um, our healing will jump off shelves and smack us in the face and tell us we have no choice but to go for it and to also call others to it and that our work is conjuring that our work is um, is ritual is invitation but it is not easy it means facing the difficult things this passage where you offer us love through each stage of that journey was such a salve to me the idea that someone could love me through all my shapes was a gift I didn't know I needed in that moment. And I just wanted to thank you for writing that. I, I want to honor our time. We've, we've, we've spent quite a bit of time together. Um, Ebony or Alexis or Sydney, did any of you want to have any last words before we formally close out? I just want to express gratitude for this conversation. Um, it has been some Friday morning church. Um, I have been rocking back and forth in my seat, back and forth front, back and forth side, um, in an embodied, full-bodied agreement with the ways that these works have, um, have and are and continue to, into the future, interact with us in our lives. 
Um, I also just want to express gratitude for each of my relationships with each of you. Um, something that we have not named is that we, there is sistering among us on this call. Um, you know, we are in conversation with one another on a regular basis. We are in um, <clears throat> a reciprocity of ideas and love and making um in many different ways over many different years and i am just so grateful that we could convene and gather at this moment today um to to share a little bit of that with one another and with others thank you sydney thank you for being ultimately the reason for this gathering and um, for those of you listening, I hope you have already got your tickets or, or perhaps have just walked out of Purple or Ritual Nine Spells, and this can be a way to carry the show home with you a little bit. Thank you so much. I'm going to stop recording now. Spotlight in Purple, the podcast, is a project of Sydney L. Mosley Dances. This episode was hosted, written, and produced by me, Kiria Traber. Assistant producing by Xiaomi Law. Production support by Max Van and Lance John. Music featured in this episode was produced and composed by Lyne Niesgaard, Spring Gang, Ebony Smith, and Counterfeit Madison. Special thanks to Shaheem L. Page for listening to early drafts and unending gratitude to Emma Alabaster, without whom... This project never would have been possible. <laughs>